Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. I will be reading Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, beautiful, and life-changing Oh, Father, as we have already been graced by your presence to exalt your Son, may he continue to be adored and worshipped through the preaching of this word. Oh, may we see, may we be engulfed in you, in your word, in your plan, in redemptive history. As we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, do it, Lord. We're so desperate for visions of you. Do it. Amen. And amen. Well, you take most of your Bible there. We call it the Old Testament. It's filled with rituals, a sacrificial system, laws on how the priests are to perform and to purify themselves. There, there are laws on what foods you can eat that are clean or acceptable to eat. And those which you are not to eat, they're, they're unclean. There are ways in which to ceremonially wash before a meal. There are geographical places. And there are four major festivals to be observed every year. Why? Don't we, Christians, hold to these? They're right there in the Bible. And the answer is because of Jesus. That's why. Something greater is here and present, even right now. 
So, here we are, weeks in chapter 7. And all of Hebrews chapter 7 has been about the, comparison-wise, superiority of Jesus, our high priest, over the entire Levitical priesthood and system in the law of Moses, which then we saw last week led to the pinnacle, the main point of the whole chapter, verse 25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. So now, in verses 26 to 28, He looks at that verse 25, and He unfolds Jesus' high priesthood. What He's really doing here is He is reinforcing this whole purpose that He's been about in Hebrews chapter 7. And to get us to what? To marvel. To get us to be wowed at the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Levitical priesthood, which Jesus came to replace. So, let's look at it and marvel. Begin with verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. <clears throat> so he says it was indeed fitting for us. Which, which points to the person of Christ. He's pointing to these things that made Jesus suitable for His saving work of us. It means He fulfilled the requirements which needed to be fulfilled if we were to be saved from our predicament of sin and a holy God. And so the writer lists right here in verse 26, five things that emphasize Jesus' fittedness. So let's look at them. First, He is holy, which points to His character as utterly set apart, holy unto God without sin. He is Innocent. And this means at its core, he's harmless. He, he's entirely free from doing evil or harm, whether in action or in his intention. Third, he's unstained, he's undefiled. He's not unclean. It means he is free from any moral or spiritual blemish. And what the author is doing 
I mean, clearly what he's doing is pointing to Jesus' in inherent, internal, moral purity in contrast to the outward purity, the outward ritual purity of the Levitical priest. Though they may have gone through the rite of becoming ritually clean, outwardly, now they are, and they can perform their duty in the Mosaic Law. Nevertheless, each one of them internally is a defiled sinner. His point is, not Jesus of Nazareth. Fourth, he is separated from sinners. This does not mean that Jesus removed himself from contact with sinners. But rather, even though he was a friend of sinners, he ate with them, he hung out with them, he talked with them. Yet the point is this, he kept himself Separate. No, meaning undefiled by not being a sinner. Separated from sinners. And we're supposed to see the contrast here with the Levitical priest who had to keep themselves away from anything that would defile them ritually. Like you cannot touch a dead body. Or you can't touch a leper. Or any other ritually unclean person. And yet, Jesus could come. He could eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He could touch them. He could touch a dead body, a blind person, a deaf person, a leper, and not be defiled. Separated from sinners. And fifth, he is exalted above the heavens. Clearly, this is referring to his resurrection and his ascension and his glorification at the right hand of God. It portrays His supreme perfection. The perfection of our unending, everlasting High Priest, as we saw last week, who now and forever is interceding for us. So what we have here in verse 26 is a High Priest who is, quote, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. No other priest could ever say that about themselves. They were all sinners, defiled like you, like me, but not Jesus. He was tempted in His true humanity in all things like we are, yet never sinned. And that leads him to the next verse, verse 27. 
which says, so Jesus, He did not have to offer sacrifices for Himself. But instead, He could offer Himself as the sacrifice. Read it. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people. Since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. Those priests were weak, finite sinners. Standing before God with the sacrificial blood of an animal. First for their own sins. Before then they make the atonement on the Day of Atonement for the people. But Jesus never needed a sacrifice for Himself before He performed His priestly duty. Because He was without sin and thus He becomes the sacrifice Himself. Which leads to one of the greatest Phrases in all the Bible. Once for all. The end of verse 27. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, it means that something happened that was decisive. That act accomplished something that meant it would never have to be repeated once for all. Well, watch how the author unfolds this in chapter 9. Turn over to chapter 9 for a moment, verse 24 to 26. For Christ has entered Not into the holy places made with hands. Not the temple in the inner sanctuary there in Jerusalem. Which those things are only copies of the true things. But he entered into heaven itself. Now when he writes. And now today in 2022. Now. To appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And and nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood. Not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once For all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Flip over to chapter 10. 
verses 11 to 12, he says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So in the law of Moses, in the Levitical priesthood, in the sacrificial service, it was a depressing reality year after year that the priest in Israel had to offer animal sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. They sinned, every one of them, and they needed a substitute to bear their own punishment before their own priestly duty as a representative of the people. God appointed these sacrifices in history for the relief of His people. It was a mercy of God that He accepted temporarily the ministry of sinful priests and the substitutionary sacrificial system of killing of animals. But the dark side of all of that was that it needed to be repeated over and over and over again, century after century. And the writer says in chapter 10, verse 3, in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin every year. The people knew that when they laid their hands upon a bull, signifying a transfer of their guilt to the bull and it to be slaughtered. They knew that we have to do it again. We're going to have to do it again and again. Because animals are not moral creatures. They're not made in the image of God. They could not bear the guilt of man. Sinful priests themselves had to sacrifice for their own sins. And they're all mortal. They're all dying. And they need to be replaced through the centuries, one after the other. That's the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so if God temporarily instituted these inadequate sacrifices, then it must mean get a purpose. It must mean that one day He would send another high priest. Not born through Aaron's line, but after a different order, as we have seen throughout this chapter. After the order of Melchizedek. And thus He would send another Sacrifice.
the atonement in order to complete and to fulfill what the Old Testament priesthood could not do. And that is put away sin once for all time. That's who Jesus is. He became the final high priest. He became the final sacrifice. He himself is sinless, immortal, and human. Sinless. Therefore, he did not need to offer sacrifices for himself. In his resurrection, he is now and always human and immortal. Thus never to be replaced. And that human aspect of him, he's not an animal. He's a true human being who could bear the guilt of human moral agents. He did it as our representative. As the second Adam, man. Whether we like it or not, in Adam, his choice doomed all of us. He was our representative. And the human race in him fell. But then Christ comes. And what he did in his perfect obedience, he did on behalf of all whom the Father has given to him. And what he did in his laying his life down on the altar of sacrifice once for all, he did that bearing of guilt once for all. For all whom the Father has given him. And therefore Jesus offered himself as the final sacrifice. There will never, ever, ever, ever be a need for another. There is only one mediator between God and all of us. And it is the man, the human being, Christ Jesus, one priest, we need no other. This once for all, it makes Jesus the very center of all of human history. Every work of God's grace that He enacted before Jesus came and laid down His life, it all looked forward to the cross. And every single movement of grace that God enacted since Jesus' death and resurrection looks back to the cross as its foundation. It's the center of the history of grace. So if God says to King David a thousand years before Jesus was born, I have put away your sin. It is only because of the cross of Christ to whom it looked forward 
It was the foundation. Grace was planned from all eternity before creation. And all of that grace was planned not ever without Jesus at the center. And His sacrifice as the foundation of that grace. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in 2 Timothy 1.9, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave to us in Christ Jesus. Before the ages began. Wow. I like that. And now, verse 28. He summarizes. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So notice he points out that Jesus is superior over the priesthood in the law of Moses Because here, he was appointed, why, by a mediator like Moses, through whom God gave the law? No. He was appointed by an oath from Yahweh, God himself. He's referring, what he's been referring to, the oath of Psalm 110, verse 4, which comes 400 years after the law of Moses. And it therefore points to the end of the law. The end of the law as a ritual, the external system. Psalm 110. Yahweh has sworn and will not change His mind. You, son of David, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's the Messianic Psalm. It's the Psalm that begins, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the context. And that leads to the superiority of Jesus' priesthood because it lasts forever. At the end of verse 28, he says, God appoints a son who has been made perfect. He is the perfect sacrifice. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That human being, perfect, forever. Okay. This is the fourth week 
in chapter 7 of Hebrews. So, what have we seen? Let me summarize what we have seen in four weeks in this chapter. We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is himself the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who came into creation, into the world, in the womb of Mary, and became a true, genuine human being. And he grew up and he lived and through all of his Humanity and dependency was utterly sinless and positively obeyed in perfect righteousness and then lay down his life as a sin sacrifice, a substitution for the sins of the people. And then he rose from the dead in not back to deity. He never ceased being divine. One person, two natures. Then he rose from human death to human resurrection and ascended to the Father and sat down as king forever in his right hand. And from there, as we saw last week, He goes on loving us and praying for us and enabling us by the Holy Spirit to draw near to God through Him. He didn't come to fit into the pre-existing Levitical priesthood or the sacrificial system laid out in Moses and that existed while Jesus walked around the temple grounds. He came to fulfill what they pointed to and thus to end them. That's chapter 7. That's what we've seen. Alright, here's the second part of the sermon. That is extremely... Okay, that's an overstatement. Okay. It, it, is, it is instructive for all of us Christians on how we are to think about the Bible from beginning to end. To think about redemptive history which is linear, not circular. It has a beginning, and it, it, it has something it's, everything's pointing to. It progresses and builds upon it. How are we to think about redemptive history? In other words, so when you pick up your Bible and you're reading in the book of Genesis about Melchizedek, and you flip through Psalm 110, and Melchizedek appears again. As you, as you read in the Law of Moses, in Leviticus, and in Numbers, and about the tabernacle, and the construction of it, and how God gave them precise blueprints on every piece of furniture, and on how the priesthood was to operate. As you're reading your Bible, seeing those things, they are there 
Because Christ Jesus came first. That's why they're there. It's not the other way around. I'll say this next week at a wedding. This is a holy covenant. But marriage exists because Christ was given a bride first. And that is to picture it. As you read Moses, Jesus came first. He's painting pictures so that when the fullness of time comes, God will send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus is the reality to which Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood and all of it pointed. And this is, this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so vital for us Christians. So do you read it? And do you read it that way? Think about the beauty of the way God purposed and constructed human history. He was deliberately patient. Creation. Garden. Rebellion. The fall. Kicked out of paradise. Patient. Abel, whom he caused to be born again, offers a sacrifice with a right heart. His brother Cain, not. Patient. Humanity multiplies and multiplies. Patient over a long period of time. Gives us patiently illustrations of the born agains versus the non regenerate. Seth's line versus Cain's. All the way up until Noah and the whole earth is filled with Cain's. Unregenerate people for the most part. And though, so God patiently waited, 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 and then demonstrated holiness through wrath and killing everyone on earth. Except for Noah and his family to start again. And then patiently waited and patiently waited. And the earth multiplies and then one day he calls an idol-making pagan, Abraham. And then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and they end up in Egypt for hundreds of years. And finally, towards the end of that, they are in horrific slavery. Now, patiently, it's time. And he sends Moses to deliver the people and for God to get His law through Moses to the nation of Israel. 1,400 years before Jesus would even come to patiently let that work itself out. Why does He do it that way? So that we would have the categories to understand the central figure of human history. Jesus Christ. And so since His coming, 
What has transpired 2,000 years ago is that so many things that are written in Scripture and were practiced change and cease to be practiced because Jesus has come and He has replaced the shadows with the reality. If you're walking outside and the sun's up and there's a big building downtown L.A. and you see a shadow walking, that's a shadow. You know there's a person coming who finally comes around the corner. The reality is here. You stop dealing with the shadows. It's Plato's cave. He says, we just live in a world that it's just all shadows because everything changes. There's got to be something real to which the shadow is on the wall here of the cave. And it's out there. It's beyond. It's real. If there's a shadow, there's, there's a, a reality. And those things were all pointing to the reality. That's what the writer says. Look at how he says it in chapter 8, verse 5. All these things he's talking about serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The Old Testament is our book. It's redemptive history unfolding through poetry through the sacrificial system, through prayers, through law-giving, through the priestly service, through prophecy, through storytelling or narrative. But now, with Christ, the essence, the substance, the reality has arrived. And all of the law and the prophets, as Jesus said, have been testifying about the reality, about Jesus of Nazareth all along. So let's just consider a few other shadows that pass away because of Christ. For instance, if you turn to John 2, it's a very famous passage here. Verses 19 to 21, Jesus answered them. Now he's standing in the temple grounds when he does this. And Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple, its grounds, the holy place and the holiest of holiest places. That was the central meeting place with God for his people. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Holy of Holies was, where the sacrifices took place. God's presence in the community dwelt there in the temple. And then Jesus says, kill me 
And I'll become the meeting place with God. Why did he say that? Because he's the reality to which the temple was only a shadow. It was a pointer, a picture. And now he, the reality, has come. He's the true meeting place with God. If you are in Christ, oh, then you are dwelling right now in the temple. And if Christ is in you, that's why you are the temple, the presence of God. With the coming of Jesus, the ritual of community worship would go through radical changes. The resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus becomes the temple by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the earthly temple passes away along with all of its rituals. And Jesus prophesied its destruction 40 years before it happened. Not one stone will be left upon another. In AD 70, it was ground to the ground. Hear these words, very simple. One sentence from Jesus' mouth in Matthew 12, 6. I tell you something, my fellow Jews, something greater than the temple is here. Let's take circumcision. The sign of the covenant. That's what it was. The sign of the covenant of children of Abraham. Circumcise every boy on the eighth day. That's the mark of the old covenant. It was a shadow. It, it was a picture. There's a mark of the old covenant. What's the reality? New birth is the sign of the new covenant. In the old covenant, there's a sense in which circumcision, being in the covenant, connected you with Yahweh. In his community, in the new covenant, it's not circumcision in the flesh. It pointed to circumcision of the heart. That's the new covenant to which the old covenant sign pointed. Physical circumcision with the coming of Christ is replaced as the sign of of the covenant with circumcision of the heart. Listen to how Paul says this in Romans 2, verse 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward. And physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. 
Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's no wonder Paul says at the end of Galatians, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor does uncircumcision count for anything. But what counts for everything is the sign of the covenant. A new creation. That's the sign. Another way to say new birth. Another way to say circumcision of the heart. And so circumcision and dietary laws and annual feast days and Sabbaths and new moons are all part of the old covenant period of Israel. It's what set them apart as God's chosen people through whom He was doing a a, a work of writing a book of redemptive history leading up to His Son. But when His Son comes, when Jesus comes, there has been a decisive shift from separation from the world by culture and rituals to go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it to every other different culture and language group and peoples. And so with the coming of Jesus, many of those cultural and ceremonial laws of Moses are set aside so that the gospel would now go and fit into all types of existing cultures. Again, if you grasp the first century and the Jewish context in which Jesus preached, Listen to his words, stunning words to them in Mark 7, verses 18 to 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside of them, food, cannot defile him? Do you not see that those kosher laws of Leviticus 11, whether you eat a bacon sandwich or pork chops or not, this is what Jesus said to him, cannot defile you spiritually. It could defile you if you're in that system when it came to ceremonial laws. But you could be clean ceremonially and on your way to hell in that system too because you're defiled internally. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark makes this comment. Thus, Jesus declared 
all foods clean. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 16-17 to the church. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Quote, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Think about the Passover night. Kill the lamb. Take some of its blood and paint it on the doorpost of your house so that the death angel of judgment will pass over you. And then in the wilderness, God instructs them. What happened there? I want you to never forget it. Every year you are to celebrate what happened there called the Passover feast. And Jesus celebrates the Passover feast with His And he says, this cup, the blood of the Lamb, is the new covenant in my blood. And so Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, here it is, because that was only a shadow, for Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is the temple. He's the tabernacle. He is the high priesthood who enters into the Holy of Holies. He's the Passover Lamb. He is the atonement sacrifice once and for all. Jesus ends the law of all animal sacrifices because He came to fulfill the reality to which they only pointed. As our text says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for His own sins, then for those of the people. Since He did this once for all, when He offered up Himself. So what that means to any of us who proclaim that Jesus is our Savior, it means go on absorbing, knowing, internalizing, reading the treasure of Genesis to Malachi. Because Christ, is all over it. It is really important to understand the concept of shadow and substance. It would be a shame. Therefore, since Christ has come for Christians to get hung up on outward rituals, to get hung up on outward forms. 
what all along the New Testament is pointing us, not to the form or to the shadow, but to the spiritual substance of a personal relationship with Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are to flee to the substance. Don't let religious ritual and form and and outward habits ever, I'm going to say it carefully, take the place of the essence of what Christianity is. Indwelt by the Spirit. You each have a personal mediator, a high priest through whom you draw near to God. Get caught up, not with the shadows, but with the person who casts the shadow. How? This is in the context. I'm about done here. You look to Jesus through this written word. Now, in particular, in 2 Corinthians 3, Verse 18, the entire context there is the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew scripture that Paul's talking about. And he says, do you have the sign of the covenant? Have you been regenerated? Have you been called to faith? You're in Christ and Christ is in you. It's not merely outward. It is internal. And he says this, therefore what? And we all, using Moses from the law, and we all, with unveiled face, are beholding, we're seeing the glory of the Lord in the Scripture. We're seeing the glory of the Lord, and thus through that, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Because this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what do you find? What do you find him to behold him, to look at him, and thus this is sanctification, to be changed? Answer in the gospel, which Paul goes on to call the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. So, the call is go on knowing deeper and deeper the Gospel and see Jesus' glory from Genesis all the way to Revelation and be being changed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your plan of salvation. We thank You that You're a meticulous God. 
meticulous in the size and the shape and the way in which the tabernacle and utensils are to be formed. You are good because you're painting a picture for us of your eternal Son, our Savior, Jesus. We love Him, Lord, because of your mercy and your grace, which is founded on Christ, our High Priest, our sacrifice once for all given. Amen. Let us stand.